0: Hi, welcome to Responsor Radio, where you ask and we answer questions of Jewish law in modern times. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip, Executive Vice President at Hadar, here with Rabbi Ethan Tucker, Rosh Sheshiva at Hadar, a Center for Jewish Learning based in New York City. I'm really interested to dive into this question today because it's uh it's about a, a phrase, a concept that I have heard, you know, maybe not my whole life, but for years, and and like the questioner, I think I don't really truly understand it. So I'm excited to to learn more. Um, and not only that, the question is actually about learning, which is great.
1: Cool. Meta self-referential. Let's get into it.
0: Here we go. The questioner writes, I'm wondering if you could help me with a question about the concept of Lashem Chinuch. So I'll pause to just maybe really r- roughly translate that as in the name of education. I work at a Hillel where some students were interested in learning how to wrap tefillin and asked if it's possible to do a workshop on Shabbat, which would be the best day timing wise to hold the program. I know there is a prohibition on wearing and handling tefillin on Shabbat. This made me curious about the parameters of Lashem Chinuch. What is the goal of this concept and how far reaching does it apply? So, so I think we have a broad question here. Uh, what is the concept of Lashem Chinuch and, and where are we meant to bring, call on it? Um, and then a more narrow question, which is, can we hold a Hillel program on Shabbat teaching people to wear tefillin?
1: Yeah, this is really interesting because it kind of gets to uh, are you, how do you think about sort of longer term and bigger goals? Um That might conflict with like local logistics, almost in this case, and you know how we how we think about dealing with that. So yeah, it probably makes the most sense here to kind of break this down. Um, Where does this idea of chinuch of educating people in mitzvot kind of start, and then maybe where might it be taken to more edgy places, Uh, and then we can. Come and see. Well, what should the questioner actually do, or what makes sense here?
0: Yeah. So before we get to any of that, maybe just give us like the most rough translation. If we if we're operating in the Jewish world and we hear people use the phrase *lashem chinuch*. Um, I'll say uh, a, an alum of Hadar, Rabbi Eliezer Lawrence, wrote a really interesting article recently about Jewish English. I feel like this is a phrase that has made it into Jewish English that someone would say, but because of Le Shem Finuch, it's okay. Um, so just tell us, like, what, is, what does it mean even when we hear people use it that way? And then we can dive a little deeper into it.
1: Yeah, so I think the way the questioner is using it and the way you're referring to it, is a usage that indicates something like, hey, there's something I want to do. It feels like you wouldn't normally do this thing, but, you know, we're teaching people. Come on, we got to loosen up the rules a little. We got to be more flexible in order to get the job done. I think if we start digging into it, we'll see that's kind of a derivative usage of it and the questioner is right to have some doubts as to well how far should we actually push
0: meaning leshem khiruf is not meant to be a loophole it's meant to actually be a concept that adds something to our lives so let's figure out what that is
1: yeah so I mean, let's build it up i think level by level here um you know there's a most simple level uh, which is the idea that you start allowing or even requiring kids, generally, to do something that they aren't really obligated in, in order to get them ready to do it for real as they get older. So I think the simplest example of this, which people uh, may be familiar with, is the idea of, well, as a grown-up, you're supposed to fast on Yom Kippur. Mm-hmm. Kids do not have to fast on Yom Kippur, but the Mishnah in Yoma says one or two years before it's the time when they really have to do it, mechanchin otam, that root of chinuch, you educate them, but really almost better translated here as you train them. You do a dry run with them before they actually have to do it. So, you know, the way that gets practiced on Yom Kippur is generally like a bunch of years before hitting the age of obligation. You fast, you know, half the day or part of the day. And then at least one year before, if not two years before, you're doing a full dry run. Um, So the idea of chinuch in that text, and on some level on the most basic level is, yeah, start doing stuff before you're formally ready. Or like Like how people will buy their kids. Yeah, training wheels for mitzvot. That's a great way to put it. And, you know, get your kid a lulav, even though they might not be totally obligated yet. Um, Buy them tzitzit. These are things they should sort of start doing as they're able to do them. And that's the shem chinuch. So the baseline idea here is you start people practicing mitzvot and literally, right, practicing both in the sense of they're actually doing them and they're practicing them like training wheels uh, before they really have to do it. It's almost like L'Shem Chinuch in that basic sense is we're going to do some dress rehearsals with you.
0: So L'Shem um, Chinuch here, if it is a loophole, it is actually a loophole that allows you to do mitzvot that you otherwise are not obligated for. That's maybe the the loophole here. We get to right practice our practice.
1: Yeah, it's like, you know, to the extent maybe you might think people shouldn't be doing mitzvot until they're doing them for real? No, like actually we want kids to start. We want them with the training wheels to kind of get ready and get started. Um, But I agree, it's not much of a loophole. It's more adding to the level of obligation, Mm -hmm. right? As opposed to thinking, oh, you hit 12, you hit 13, you go from zero to 60. This idea of chinuch is saying, actually you have to like ease into that um, and build up to it. So that's the base level that is not so interesting, so controversial, uh, just as a sort of basic idea.
0: Yeah, I'll say this may not be useful in terms of sock or figuring out what to do holistically, Um, But I, one of the things I think is really beautiful about this concept is that it is a concept that links. Uh, one person makes a decision that impacts somebody else's mitzvot observance, um, which in this case, it, it could be your own children whose mitzvot, obviously you are involved in, um, but maybe other people's kids too, you know, just just the idea that meets vote are sort of an interpersonal activity also is is beautiful. And this is a concept that brings us to that realization and acknowledgement that, um, you know, it's not every everyone for themselves when it comes to observance of mm-hmm. meets vote.
1: Yeah, people aren't just going to get up and do these on their own. It's actually like a team effort of how do you gear someone up to, you know, be able to do it. Um okay so that's let's say the ground floor. But you don't have to think too long to realize that if you start having people kind of practicing mitzvot well sometimes it'll just be neutral right like if you're picking up a lulav um what what could be bad about that mm-hmm. like worst case scenario you're picking up a stick <laughs> but let's say i tell you oh yeah, you're going to sit down now and do a practice run of these brachot, of these blessings. You're going to do a practice run of praying, of the amida, of all kinds of pieces of liturgy. Well, that starts to implicate the question of vatalah, the notion of saying a blessing not for an actual purpose. More to the point, when you say a blessing, Baruch Ata Hashem, and if you don't say Hashem and you actually say God's name, you're doing something that's not entirely a neutral act. Mm -hmm. Because our normal stance is, it is forbidden to say God's name. The only question is, are you doing it for an authorized purpose, which then means you're allowed to do it. So, There are certain kinds of actions, particularly involving, again, liturgy in God's name, where it's a little more of a high wire act here, because either there's a potentially biblical violation of saying God's name in vain, or you're authorized to do it. So can we, and under what grounds can we, actually say that kids uh, can do this kind of practice with something that's a lot more high voltage. This actually, so it comes up sort of by the by in the Talmud, in uh, Talmud Brachot. Um, they imagine a scene um, where there are kids in some kind of learning or school setting, and they are saying Brachot. And the image is one of a teacher basically saying, okay, kids, what do you say you know, before you eat an apple? And the kids are all like, Mm -hmm. shouting out, it's the proper blessing. But they're saying God's name. And there is a question in the Talmud. Shmuel asks Rav, hey, when I hear kids saying a bracha, saying a blessing in that context, do I say amen? Because normally when you hear someone say a bracha, you have to say amen. And there's a sort of feeling of, is that real?
0: And in this case, they're not actually eating apples, right? They're just in brachabi.
1: So, this is exactly what the Talmud then picks up. So, Rav answers him and says, You do not answer when kids make brachot, when kids make blessings. And the Talmud then jumps in and says, Yeah, yeah, but that's only when they're practicing. Rav uses the phrase, ulehit lamed asuyin, Since all kids are doing, is practicing. You're not going to answer amen. It's not a real bracha. But, says the Talmud, if they were actually eating an apple mm-hmm. and saying bore priyates then you would answer because they're doing a religious act with significance. So we, on the one hand, get this sort of uh, statement that when a bracha is being practiced, it's not a real bracha. You don't answer. But on the other hand, we have a fascinating just sort of assumption and picture of an authorized gathering of children to do this kind of practicing, even when the bracha is totally unmoored. From practice.
0: This is an example where I would say it could seem like such a mundane question of like, okay, do I say amen or not? This is like a technical halachic, you know, oh, who cares? Um, and I have to say that in my experience as a parent teaching my children brachot when they're actually eating, mm-hmm. getting to say amen to their bracha is. Is like the most important, you know, experientially, it's so rewarding to them. It's like the cheer after they do something and you say, Yay, you did it, you know, to get to like say, Amen. You said yeah. such a beautiful bracha just now that I, that I really, I sort of feel that page of Talmud in a visceral way, um, mm-hmm. that I wouldn't want that taken away from me. So I'm glad they said it's okay.
1: And they're saying it's okay when they're doing it for real, Mm -hmm. and they're also insisting on, hey, even for kids, let's distinguish between real and practice, right? So the interesting question, what comes out here is, well, how do we justify that? How do we justify a bunch of second graders sitting around in a classroom saying a blessing form with God's name? Forget about whether we answer amen or not. How do we justify them saying God's name when it's not actually an authorized and required usage. And here you have a fascinating split between the Tosafot and the Rambam. So the Tosafot resolved this by saying, yeah, kids aren't subject to the prohibition of lotisa. Kids are not subject to the third commandment where you're forbidden from taking God's name in vain. And since they are not really subject to that, Therefore, they're not really doing anything wrong when they practice. Implication being, an adult would not be able to practice.
0: Like what about the teacher, right? That's right. The teacher would not be able to do it. Right. So the teacher better get themselves an apple.
1: <laughs> That's right. The uh, the tosobot, if you think about it, it's a very simple, elegant explanation, but with quite strict implications because it means you're actually not overriding anything here, sh'em chinuch. It happens to be there's no prohibition on kids saying God's name in that way. And therefore it's no different than the lulav or fasting mm-hmm. early um, because there's no countervailing concern. Okay, Rambam is totally different. The Rambam has a formulation where he says, kids, you teach them how to say brachot uh, in their full form, even though, says the Rambam, they are making a blessing in vain when they do that, it's permitted. Very different formulation, right? If you hear that, it's not saying, no, that's not a blessing in vain. It's, It's fine. It's saying it is a blessing in vain, but it is allowed. The Rambam does not spell out why he thinks it's allowed, but it seems to be some version of, and later commentators suggest this, there's no other way to do it. There's no other way to train kids to be ready with brachot other than having them learn the full formula with God's name. So what are you going to do? Maybe
0: there's no other way to do it, but, but it feels to me like you could also read it as it's just that important. Um, like in the game... You know, which which I think, if I'm remembering right, Rambam sometimes plays of like which which mitzvah trumps the other mitzvah. Um, that he, that he's saying, you know, like the need to educate your ch- these children in how to say brachot is actually so important that it could justify this prohibition. You yeah, know?
1: I, I think that's right, and that's the sense even in which I'm saying there's no other way. It's so important and. Uh, maybe, like, maybe if you could tell me how someone could fluently learn a text without ever saying it until they had to do it, he'd be open to it. But there's an implicit thing of, of course, this must happen. And yeah, it's sort of built into the system we're going to have to uh Sorted out
0: in that. It's a good argument for experiential education. Actually, you guys, don't don't do a fake wedding. Take your kids to an actual wedding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, find yeah. find yeah. the opportunities where their brachot are real. Give them real apples. Yeah. You know, right, <laughs>
1: right, that's right. So the Rambam, I think you can hear here, this begins to open up the possibility that you might say, um, you do something that is actually problematic or normally violative in order to educate someone. It's not a fully blown, fleshed out theory, and it's not clear at all, um, you know, whether it extends beyond uh, saying God's name, whether that is still specific in some way, but it's different than the Tosafo, right? It's opening up that kind of discourse.
0: So it's getting us closer. We're getting a step closer. Maybe we're not all the way there to the question of uh, handling tillin, on Shabbos, for the sake of learning how to use them, because we're starting to get to the question of saying, "I know I'm not allowed to do it, but could I do it?"
1: Yeah, that's right. So let's let's push to that that next question that you're you're raising to bring us back to our uh, our questioner. Um, and I think uh, anything that wants to push further than we've gone into the zone of uh, you're actually potentially you know, really doing something wrong, or there's a principle that you're allowed to do that uh, in order to get more kind of regular in your practice of mitzvot, that's going to go through a Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah, uh, which is talking about blowing shofar. And it's a really interesting text that says, you don't stop children from blowing shofar on Rosh Hashanah, rather you actually actively get involved with them so that they learn. All right, what's going on there? Blowing shofar in Rosh Hashanah is actually a complicated act because the Torah tells us it's a day of horn blowing. There's an obligation to do it. But on the other hand, if you think about Yom Tov in general, you're not allowed to pick up a loud wind wind instrument and blow it.
0: That has always been confusing to me.
1: Yeah, right? It's a confusing tension. And on some level in general, what we say about that is, yeah, so you're allowed to blow the shofar when you're fulfilling your obligation or other people's obligations, but you shouldn't just on the afternoon of Rosh Hashanah, back at home, sit there playing with the shofar and blowing it. And so therefore, you might think, well, kids who are not even fulfilling any kind of serious obligation in shofar, they really shouldn't be allowed to blow the shofar at all. And this text says, no, they are allowed, and says, not only do you not stop them, you encourage them because you want them to learn. something
0: interesting about that because unlike the, um, how are you ever supposed to learn brachot, this feels to me a little bit like well, well, you could have learned how to blow the shofar during Elul. Like, why do you need to do it, Dafa, totally. on the Totally. On the it's holiday? very
1: confusing. It's not clear why it's necessary. And it almost suggests that while the surface level reading, you know, of what's going on here is, it's well, so they'll be trained there, there seems like there's something also going on of not stopping them or not wanting to deny them the experience of, like, engaging with the shofar and Rosh Hashanah. Or you might
0: say what they're training in is not how to make the sounds, which they could do else, elsewhere or else when, <laughs> that what you're training them in is the experience that this is Yom Truah, this is the day where you blow the shofar.
1: That's right. Or you could even push further, like in the case of fasting on Yom Kippur, you don't train them to do the fasting on some other day, which they could also. You want them to have the experience of, oh, in a few years' time, I will be doing this as an adult. And in that sense, blowing the shofar on any day other than Rosh Hashanah can't give that training wheels experience, right, Mm -hmm. in that kind of a way.
0: Um, I do feel surprised in the communities that I exist in, that there aren't more people who feel comfortable blowing the shofar. Um, and and I, I always find myself wondering, like, why isn't this a thing that we teach all of the kids to do? Mm-hmm. So I feel actually a little bit drawn to this question of, yeah, why isn't this part of the standard education um, you know, why is it exceptional to say, oh, my goodness, you blow the shofar? People are always very surprised if I say I can blow the shofar. Um, and and I want to say, like, yeah, my six-year-old and my eight-year-old can already blow the shofar perfectly. The right, the right calls. And I don't understand why everybody can't. Um, so, so it feels important to me. Yeah,
1: you're also, I think you're making me think, you know, this Mishnah taken at full value, uh, at full depth. Uh, would probably say, yeah, shuls should have a kid's chauffeur blowing class on Rosh Hashanah afternoon. Like yeah, that should be one of the main activities, right? And then you would also get all kinds of people who are ready to do it more. So here's the thing. That's a kind of interesting beginning, but it gets much crazier because in the Talmud commenting on this Mishnah, Rabbi Elazar comes along and he says, Afilu Even on Shabbat, you are allowed to have the kids blow the shofar. Wow. Talmud there and kids kind of agitated of understanding: are, are we encouraging them on Shabbat? Are we just not stopping them on Shabbat? How do we understand all the parameters? And they end up modifying it a little bit by saying. Well, there's a distinction between really little kids and kids that are older. And, you know, for one of those sets of people, we would outright encourage them. For one of those sets of people, we wouldn't encourage them, but we wouldn't stop them. It's then a whole mess. No one really understands which group is which because the Talmud is vague. So are you more lenient with younger kids or with older kids? But putting all of that uh, kind of question aside of all the details... We have here a ramped up statement that at least for some kids, whether it's the younger kids or the older kids, you are allowing, encouraging the blowing of the shofar on Shabbat.
0: That
1: feels shocking to me. Totally shocking. So
0: that I want to say like, no, no, you read it wrong. That's not what it said.
1: Okay, and it's not should not be surprising that there was a similar range in the post-Talmudic commentaries. So, just since we're on shock for right now, the uh, the most shocking extension of this uh, is in the Rambam, who we already saw might be playing with some limits here of right. what can I do again? L'shem chinuch, the Rambam says afilu b'shabat. That statement of you even are allowed to take liberties on Shabbat with allowing kids to blow the shofar applies to a Shabbat that's not Rosh Hashanah, meaning like Shabbat Lechlecha, okay? Like a random, yeah. random Shabbat during the year, if the kid is just trying to learn the shofar, actually for the purpose of that mitzvah, you're allowed to let them do it. At least not stop them. I got that
0: not stop. sounds a lot like our case of feeling it's, it's on Shabbat.
1: It's getting pretty close to our case. That formulation of the Rambam would be, uh, I think, the, the most far-out position you could find of saying, in his formulation, a very young child, so he limits it to a very mm-hmm. young child who doesn't actually yet fully get what's going on. You don't have to stop them from playing with and blowing the shofar, which has a mitzvah purpose, at any point during the year on any Shabbat. But now, just even to he clarify,
0: Rambam would say you have to stop them from playing with crayons, a very young kid, on Shabbat?
1: Yeah, he would say, again, to the extent they can understand a no, Yeah. right? And you might have a kid that's so young, they don't even understand what you're talking about. But a kid who would understand a no, yeah. That's already the point you have to educate them. We don't do this on Shabbat, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But because the shofar is a sort of mitzvah oriented object, like the tefillin in the questioner's case, you don't stop them, right? Now, again, even the Rambam is pulling back and will say, well, when the kid gets older, then you already do pull them back. But I give it just as an example of this kind of thinking appearing that a mitzvah-oriented object or practice might, because we think it's good to kind of, you know, get into it, um, might actually be something that we allow you to violate something or otherwise be lax, right, about boundaries you would be enforcing. Um, so that, that's sort of far out on one end. Yeah. Um, any number of other commentators sort of rein this in. Like the more, you know, standard way you might rein it in, which is a way, quite honestly, I would read it if I were thinking about it, um, is to say, no, 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 Shabbat, even on Shabbat means even when Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbat, even though you might not be blowing the shofar, it's still Yom Trua, it's still the day you don't stop a kid uh from engaging and having that experience, right? The most restrictive position, which I think we shouldn't be surprised, appears, um, is one that says, no, 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 no. That statement of Rabbi Elazar, that you can allow kids to blow the shofar even on Shabbat, is only at a time and place where they blew the shofar on Shabbat. So meaning, Mm -hmm. since either in the Beit HaMikdash, they are in the temple blowing the shofar, Or even after the temple is destroyed, for many hundreds of years, the shofar was still blown on Shabbat in a Beit Din, in places of rabbinic power and influence like Yavne and then other places following it. All Rabbi Elazar means to say is, even though it's a lot more weighty to blow the shofar on Shabbat, and you might think that, well, we're not going to have kids do that. We only do it in a court. No, no. If it's in a place where the shofar is being blown on Shabbat, they're a kid like any other uh, Jew who is training with, like they would with any other mitzvah to get ready to be an adult. And since as an adult, they would blow shofar on Shabbat in that place, they then do it for themselves. But today, where there is no real remaining practice of blowing shofar on Shabbat, this doesn't apply at all. And of course, you don't allow any sort of child of any age to blow the shofar. That's where the conventional halakha ends up. Like, if you look for this codified in the Shulchan Aruch, you will not find it, because it just gets deleted, because there's an assumption, we don't blow Shafar and Shabbat anymore, we follow that more restrictive position, and the Rambam is kind of, you know, uh, laid out to, to pasture. But seeing, as we often do in this show, getting a fuller sense of like, well, what was said or what was entertained at different points in time... This gives you a sense, like the questioner is not crazy here to say, I don't know, I have some instinct that maybe sometimes in order to get someone to do a mitzvah, um, you might bend the rules in order to let them get more familiar. Like, yeah, that idea does exist out there in the system. Um, the question I think we now have to ask is, well, how does some of this stuff around kids translate to adults? And what might be kind of the guiding principles for helping us think about how do we make these decisions?
0: The other thing that this disagreement has in common with the first version that you told us, or the first level that you told us, um, is that it seems like actually there's sort of two different directions to get out of it. One is, it's not allowed, but maybe you could do it anyway, which which is, again, the round bomb. And the other is, well, maybe this comment is in the context of a time when this actually is allowed. Uh, Maybe they are actually eating apples. Maybe you can actually blow shofar on Shabbat. And that's why it's okay. It's not that you can transgress something. It's that the thing we're talking about is actually kind of okay. Um, Those seem like two different approaches and we saw that repeat twice now.
1: That's nice. Yeah, I think that's a useful way of of grouping this together and seeing those trends. And then that can lead us to... uh, you know, being aware of the range of how people are thinking about this. Okay, so are, are there some guiding principles that can help us figure out how how do we decide about this? And there's a transition we also have to make, which is from uh, kids to the questioner who's talking about adults yeah. who are perhaps not familiar with the practice of a certain mitzvah and need guidance. Rav Moshe Feinstein actually takes this up uh, really almost in passing, Uh, In a tshuva where he's talking about the question of uh, teaching people to say brachot and, you know, are you allowed as the teacher to kind of say the words out, say God's name in order to kind of demonstrate to them, you know, here's what the words are. And he just jumps and says, well, yeah, of course, like adults who need to learn are no different from children. The texts are talking about children Uh, in a number of these areas, because they're assuming a reality where, well, of course, adults would know. And the only people who don't know and who need to be educated are children. But he says that's just a function of the sociological and educational matrix in which people live if you live in a context where, for whatever reason, uh, adults need that kind of guidance. So, yeah, the notion that you have to say God's name because it's potentially the only way to teach them, um, is he assumes the right way to think about
0: it. I think a lot of people, um, approach that, use that approach in learners, minyanim, um, you know, that would happen maybe on a Shabbat morning in a side room at, at, at Shul, where they would say, okay, there's only six people here, but the purpose is for you to learn the Anita. <laughs> so we're still going to read the words here. Um, because that's that's the exercise, and this is an extension of, of that same chinuch education piece.
1: Yeah, that's right. Now, I, you know, he doesn't really go into it in depth, but it does seem like in that shuva, he's siding implicitly more with the Rambam on the question of, well, there might be a problem here, but nonetheless, uh, it's permitted, uh, because he can't say, as we noted earlier— um, in the world of the Tosafot, you can't say, "Well, adults aren't subject to the prohibition on taking God's name in vain." So once you once you move over to adults, there seems to be some implicit endorsement of the notion that, look, if this is the only way to get someone to learn a bracha properly, uh, that's what you're going to have to do, um, and you know the concern about brachot is not going to apply. So. That, that's out there, um, and I think that requires a little more kind of investigation and thought of what all the implications are. But let's move now to kind of two principles uh, that I want to highlight here to take us home on this topic. The first thing um, is laid out by Abaye in the Talmud in Chagiga, and he says something very basic, um, but which I think is very helpful, which is, whenever an adult has a biblical obligation— in a certain mitzvah you then obligate kids to do it midrabanan on a rabbinic level okay so we look at what are adults going to have to do and if there's like a high level biblical command they're expected to do we then impose upon ourselves and our children and our educational system uh, an obligation of a rabbinic level to train them but if adults do not have in whatever context an obligation to do something uh, on a biblical level. We don't impose that kind of expectation. Now, on some level, this is about you know biblical versus rabbinic obligations. But there's actually just sort of a cleaner point here uh, that Abaye is making, which is let's not forget that the things that we're doing are meant to be trainings for stepping into a fuller obligation. In other words. It's not just, hey, there's a shofar. Um, Wouldn't it be great if people kind of learned to be comfortable with the shofar? No, what we're actually doing is saying there's an obligation to blow the shofar. We want people to step into that. So we want to train people to be able to step into that. And therefore, whenever we're thinking educationally and programmatically, we should be thinking about is this action, is this educational context going to help this person step into that role? So let me go back to your minion example, which I think is a great example of it. The minion at camp or the minion in a day school, let's say, where there are kids and there are not 10 adults, let's say, present in the room. So there's kind of two ways to think about it. You could think about it, and this is how Uh, Rav Shlomo Gorin thought about this question. Yeah, those kids have to grow up to be a minion of adults. That says Baruch and Kedusha and all the special things you only do with a minion. And therefore, you look at the room and it's sort of like, you know, if you turn the clock of time forward and turn them all into adults, they'll be doing, you know, this stuff later. They should practice it now. And again, according to Rav Gorin, many synagogues, many institutions, uh, that's what they've done. They've said, yeah, a minion is with 10 adults. Um, but you know, a group of 10 kids who are practicing to be adults, um, they're they're allowed and they should do this uh uh you know, this practice. The alternate way to think about it is you're actually training them to be undermined about the importance of having 10 adults in the room when you say these things. Mm -hmm. Meaning if the action of saying something like Kaddish is not just, oh, there's a bunch of people in the room and I say words, but that a child looks around and says, oh, there's 10 grownups here. That's what you need for Kaddish. If you ignore that, right, you run the risk that you're training them for something that doesn't exist, which is the day of Rosh Hashanah, for instance, is the day of Rosh Hashanah. So if they're blowing the shofar, they're stepping into the role they would have as an adult on that day. But Minyan, you could argue, is only is a thing to train for in the presence of 10 adults. And the vast majority of people who took up this question in any kind of depth went down, came down on that side. You know, Rav Soloveitchik, Rav Moshe Feinstein, a very long list that basically said, no, you shouldn't have a kid's minion. And actually, part of educating the children is you need uh, grown-ups in the room. It's complicated, right, when you have school davening um, and you've separated out the kids because of our, you know, industrial revolution system of education and kids go off for eight hours in the day on their own. Um, it creates a challenge because if you're worried, where else are they going to learn that? There could be a real hole in their education. But I think it's really useful to think about that question. You're not just exposing a person to a mitzvah, you're exposing them to how do we actually do this mitzvah? So, and this goes to actually a sort of a, a companion principle, which has a really useful phrase for thinking about this. The phrase is, Ate le you could do something with a child and I think you can extend this to an adult in training as well, um, that would lead them when they grow up to go astray. Here's the amazing example of it that's given in the Talmud. There's a bunch of examples, but it's a great example. Um, they're, the Talmud's trying to figure out, they're assuming for the moment, they throw this assumption out later, but they assume you can only say shehechianu on the festivals that special bracha to mark the calendar coming around again over a cup of wine and then they want to know well shoot what should we do on Yom Kippur you need to say sheikhu on Yom Kippur and if you need to do it over a cup of wine how are you going to do it they say well you can't like start Yom Kippur early uh you know say Sheikhyanu and then drink because the second you say Sheikhyanu you've accepted Yom Kippur and you're not allowed to drink anymore you can't say She'echianu and Borei over the cup of wine and then just put it down and not drink it because you said a bracha. Someone's got to drink. So then they say, we have an idea. Why don't you bring a kid? And you say, you know, the Kiddush and She'echianu and give them to drink. I mean, that's actually what happens in tons of shuls on Friday night every week. Why not just do that? And their answer is, le Misrah." That child is going to grow up thinking, I love Yom Kippur. It always starts with a nice swig of Manushevis. And then they will actually have the taboo of not drinking on Yom Kippur weakened for them as part of their educational pathway.
0: Right. So the the balance here is, um, you know, maybe I can allow something to happen that shouldn't otherwise for the sake of, of education and on the other end of that is, but let's not take that to such an extreme that my kid starts to remember things wrong. They actually learn the wrong pattern here. I think it's really helpful. I think it's helpful any time we have a concept and we're asking the question the way the questioner, we had it phrased in the, uh, in the question that was submitted of like, how far does this extend? Um, it's almost always, you know, impossible to answer that without figuring out, well, what's the value on the other side? And how do we hold that in balance, um, you know, to make sure that we we level out our answers and we don't start just doing crazy things?
1: <laughs> yeah. And so I guess to bring us back, you know, my answer to the question as asked is, I would not do the tefillin workshop on Shabbat. Um, and I would give sort of two reasons for why I wouldn't do it. First is, you know, the sort of Tosafot concern on, you know, one side of this uh, discussion we've been having that well, maybe you really shouldn't do mitzvot training things when you really think there's a prohibition involved. Um, and like all other things being equal, shouldn't we avoid that? Uh, shouldn't we find a way to do it sort of more cleanly, as it were? And this does involve the inappropriate handling of tefillin, uh, you know, on Shabbat. But even if Right, even if you would say, "Well, but what if it's you know really the best time to happen?" and we have some of the Rambam's thinking on this, I think it would be a mistake because you're not actually training someone to put on tefillin properly. Part of which is not putting them on on Shabbat. That is to say, this isn't just, "Hey, let's get you exposed uh, to this ritual object." We're actually saying we're going to do a dry run. L'shem chinuch is we're kind of educating you into stepping into this mitzvah, and actually that could be de- destabilizing and disorienting to practice the mitzvah in a way it's not practiced.
0: I think also um, the frequency of how much, help, how often you would allow something, you know, it makes me think of the difference between saying. Uh, There's a person standing in front of me and they want to learn to put on tefillin and they'll never be standing in front of me again. And this is the only chance we'll ever have to teach them to put on tefillin versus how quickly that could become, oh yeah, we wear tefillin in our junior congregation because the students are only here on Shabbat morning. They're not here on any other morning. So that's our only chance to teach them how to put on children. So we wear Tbilan at junior congregation on Shabbat, to which we would say, no, 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 no. no! You're like, that is all wrong. And they're going to really learn, you know, they're going to remember, like, of course you wear it on Shabbat. We always wear it on Shabbat at junior congregation. Um, and, and that maybe being able to hold that those are different, different answers.
1: Right. I mean, to take a sort of extreme from, you know, stuff... Uh... Stuff I remember in my youth, you know, someone's going to, you know, if they're going to the Soviet Union uh, and it's like, you know, they're dropping off a pair of tefillin or something and they get the visa to come into the town, you know, only on Friday night, whatever it is, you might, right? You might think of it differently. Uh, What if you have no other time because you're being shipped out, you know, the second Shabbat ends and this is their portal to then ever being able to put on tefillin for the rest of their life. Okay that might be different right or you might think about it differently i think it's useful to remember there's all kinds of circumstances that can affect these questions
0: so there's there's a lot in this question i would say uh, this 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 is a long episode because n- not surprisingly maybe we 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 love education <laughs> and and we could talk about it for a long time it's certainly something that we we think a lot about um in the work that we're doing out of Hadar, um, and I would say, as we as we've just launched a children and families division at Hadar, it's something the the children element is something that we're starting to think about also even more um, in our work, in addition to um, in our lives as as parents and training kids in the world. So, so this is a really interesting and also training adults um, and trying to think about, you know, how to how to treat children enough like adults and how to not treat adults too much like children, I would say. Um, and so this is all really useful and helpful. Thanks. Have a halakhic question you'd like answered on the show? Email us at halakha at hadar.org. H-A-L-A-K-H-A-H at hadar.org. Would you like to sponsor an episode of Responsor Radio? Email radio at hadar.org. Responsor Radio is a project of the Hadar Institute. Thanks to Jeremy Tavik for producing this podcast and to Evan Feist for editing this episode.